So I'll give a talk tonight. I was reflecting on what to talk about. And uh, I've been teaching a course on love for the past five weeks. And, uh, and so I didn't want to talk about love tonight because I've been talking about it a lot. Um, and I thought I would talk about dukkha and what it means to practice with dukkha in Buddhism and for ourselves personally and how it can be freeing to practice with dukkha. How many people here don't know what the word dukkha means? Please raise your hand. Let me see. See, Great. Thank you. So this is an important word in Buddhism. Dukkha is a word um, that's normally translated as suffering, right? And the Buddha, Buddhism's a little bit famous for suffering, but that's a big thing in Buddhism is suffering. And the Buddha said, I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. So it's a very important concept, principle, uh, part of reality. And here, here, this is, give you an example. So if if, and here's the definition of the word dukkha. <clears throat> it means suffering. Also could be translated as sorrow, misery, dis-ease, discomfort, disenchantment, discontentment, excuse me, discontentment, imperfection, insubstantiability, um, pain, hurt, stress. Those are all different ways to point at dukkha. Just let me see, is there anybody here who doesn't have any dukkha? Please raise your hand and you can come teach the class instead of me. But, um, but it, so, it's a, so I'm pointing at it because it's very normal dukkha. And it's one of the things that people don't, often don't get in a society where everybody's always supposed to be happy and that makes everything good. If you buy the right thing or you get the right job or you have the right partner or you live in the right place or there's some conditions that'll make you feel happy all the time. And I'm happy, I would be happy to find those conditions but I haven't been able to so far. And um, and so, suffering, dis-ease, discontent, right, stress, is part of being human. In, in Buddhism, it's um, one of the areas that it's talked about in it's the three characteristics. And the Buddha pointed that there are three basic characteristics of life that we want to be aware of. And one of them is dukkha. And he didn't say all of life is dukkha or life is dukkha. He said it's a characteristic of life that we want to be aware of because it's true, because it's here. Right? And so you can all even reflect, even while you're sitting here while I'm talking about dukkha, right? Because you all have some dukkha, right? And we'll we'll look a little bit more about what it means to practice with dukkha and what it means to uh, live an embodied life 
that has dukkha or difficulty or dis-ease or uncomfortability or uh, stress. <clears throat> and remember, the, word, the reason the word dukkha is such a great word is because there's no real word in English that really points to what dukkha points to because it's so broad. Meaning, dukkha can be that I'm talking here and, you know, you're sitting here and, and it's a boring talk and so you're sitting here and I go on and on and on and, and you you want to go home but I keep talking and talking and we've locked the door so you can't leave for a while. And, and, and so that's a certain kind of dukkha. You know, it's not horrible, it's not the worst dukkha, but it's dukkha when when we want to go somewhere and we can't go, or we want to leave and it's not over, things like that. And dukkha is also the worst kind of difficulty, which is war or, or murder or hatred or racism or bias or the kind of things that we live with um, uh, collectively that are are based on the ignorance of human beings and human beings not being awake. And so, but, but Duke includes all of it, or it could include I'm sitting here and my hip starts to hurt while I'm sitting here. And it's not horrible, it's not nothing terrible, and I'll survive and I can sit, I know how to sit with pain, so it's okay, I'll have some pain. But it's still Duke. <clears throat> or, or um, I keep having to clear my throat because it's, something's happening there, and you know it's very minor dukkha. It's like this. It's almost almost dukkha is too big a word, but dukkha includes any kind of discomfort or disease, including the worst kind of discomfort and dis-ease. Again, the Buddha said, he said, I taught or I teach one thing, which is suffering and the end of suffering. And so that's where he pointed his attention. Even though it said he had a great, great knowledge of different realms of reality and consciousness. And so the, the metaphor he used is often, it's a handful of leaves. He said to the monastics who were with him, he said, he said, um, um, how many, he had, a, he had picked up a handful of leaves, and he said, uh, what's, what's greater, the handful of leaves I have in my hand, or the leaves on all the trees in the forest? And they said, well, of course, the, the, trees on the, the leaves on the trees are much greater than the leaves in your hand. And he said, he said to them, yes, that you're right. And, and I know the, the field of awareness, the leaves on the trees, I'm familiar with all of them, but all I teach are the leaves in my hand, which are the Four Noble Truths, which is about suffering, and the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering, and the path that leads to the end of suffering. And right, so he said, there's dukkha, there's the cause of dukkha, there's the end of dukkha, and there's the path that leads to freedom.
And so <clears throat> I'm going to offer you a number of questions to reflect on, but really to live with. Like, what does it mean to be with suffering? To be with suffering. Because you notice our meditation, we're not trying to get away from suffering. We're not trying to jump over it or forget, forget about it or pretend it's not here when it's here, whether it's suffering of the body, heart, or mind. We want to be aware of what's true, of the Dharma. And Dharma means truth. Right? So what does it mean to be embodied and to be aware of suffering? And to really, because how many people don't have any body dukkha? Let me just see, you don't have any body dukkha. Okay, this is a very um, homogenous group. We all have body dukkha. And so one of the things that will come if you sit for 40 minutes like we just did, or if you sit a little longer, 45 or an hour, a few hours, you'll see body dukkha. And part of it, the practice is to be aware of it, is not just to fix it. And I'm, you don't have to go after the dukkha. I'm not saying go sit for three hours or five hours or eight hours. You know, that you can do that, but trust me, it'll hurt. But, but, um, but what it means is, what's the value of learning how to sit with pain or discomfort or disease? whether it's physical or uh, affective or, or mental, because they will all come. Anybody notice that their thoughts didn't stop while you were sitting, like they kept going even if you didn't want them to go? Anybody have no thoughts while they were sitting? It happens sometimes, but it usually takes a little more meditation to get that uh, concentrated. And so, we're, I'm bringing up the question about dukkha and what it means to be embodied with it to also look at what does it mean to be free from suffering and what is the potential for being free or the potential for being with our suffering so that it releases on its own or it lets us go rather than us letting it go. Actually, either way is good. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, and so, right, aware of, my, of the body of, means to be aware of the somatic, kinesthetic, energetic experience that's right here. Can everybody aware of their body right now? All right, great. When I was contemplating this today, I was walking in the park and I was watching my mind suffer. And the suffering, it was very, it was just ordinary suffering, comparing mind, judging mind, wanting mind, not wanting mind, you know, but it wasn't just relaxed and, and, uh, and enjoying itself particularly. It just was doing its thing. And it wasn't me doing it, it just does it self. And I was also aware of it, so I wasn't connected to it. I wasn't attached to it. 
I wasn't totally identified with it. It was just my mind doing what minds do. And um, it wasn't actually a problem, but it could have been. And when I'm when I'm when I was aware of it, and when I am aware of my mind, my mind's ideas lose some of their potency. Right? They're just thoughts, or they're just ideas, or they're just often beliefs, even. And it's always great to see when I'm believing something that's actually not true. It's just the belief that it's true. Hmm. And so I was watching how the meditative process started functioning as I was walking, and I was having these thoughts, and I was thinking I should do this, or I should do that, or I want this, or I want that. And, and, um, and I just watched all of that begin to relax instead of being so demanding of me. And so it began, it began to free itself without me doing anything except being aware of it. And so you can see, and I hope you even saw it in your meditation tonight, when you're aware of something, there's a way we're actually not just enchanted by it or immersed in it or aware of it. <clears throat> and so there's a kind of stepping back that brings an equanimity inherent in stepping back because there is a little bit of distance from what's being known. It's all being known. It's all being known right in the moment, even the dukkha. And this is true, at least for me, even with my body. My body was hurting. You know, I, I, right before I came here, I, uh, I, my hips have been bugging me. And, uh, and I took a bike ride today, and then uh, I had a very quick dinner. And then all of a sudden, I just felt, oh, my, this, it really hurt. So I laid down on the floor and started doing some stretching, and it helped relieve it, which was good. And, but it didn't. But it's it's not going away. So I made a call to uh, a friend of mine who's one of my body people. Like she knows a lot about bodies, and so and I'm like, do I need to get a goddamn hip replacement or not? You know what what's happening here? Because this has been a daily problem for me, this hip thing, and it's been quite a while. And uh, and I'm good with my body, and I take care of it, and do a lot of good things, but. But I'm tired of it. And she said, well, you know, she said, well, wait a second. What's wrong with it exactly? We don't know. And she did a whole pit with me to get an MRI, MRI which isn't so easy to get because you have to convince them you need an MRI. And, uh, but I'm good at doing that. So, but, it's, but it was very interesting to watch. The pain was here, is here. Even now I can feel it. But it's not a big deal. There's something about awareness that allows something to be here. And I'm not saying always, but right now, it can be here, and it's not a big deal. 
And of course, when I get home late tonight before I go to sleep, I'll do some stretching of, of it to keep supporting it, relaxing and being okay. But and so I'm trying to point to both suffering and what happens if we stay embodied and present and aware and work with the suffering. <coughs> and then there's different kinds of suffering, different kinds of dukkha. Some of it's not personal, some of it's collective. So one of the kinds of dukkha that I see as I walk around and in the park today again is our societal dukkha that so many people are homeless these days. And it's just, personally, it's heartbreaking to see it. Like, what the hell happened to our society that we have, so many people have become homeless, or that so many people, I think I read something, uh, there's a guy, I think he's got a lot of money, named Jeff Bezos. Right? He's got a little bit of money, like $140 billion. Like, is that... I mean, somebody, I said this to someone, and they said, oh yeah, that's obscene. And it, it is. And I don't, I don't begrudge people having money, but does anybody need $140 billion? Am I wrong about that? Or is, I mean, does that... It's just like... And, and I don't even have a bad feeling towards the guy, you know. That's what you do in this culture if you can do it. You make as much money as possible because that's what you're supposed to do. And it has nothing to do with our lived reality of what it is to be here together as a society and as a culture and as a community together. And so I was watching the suffering and the empathy I felt for the people who were homeless, um, and some of whom are, seem pretty together and some of whom are not together. There seems to be a lot of mental illness also that is flourishing in our society at this time. And it's dukkha, it's dukkha that we all have to deal with because it's there, and especially in San Francisco, if you go anywhere, it's there. And I don't know how to deal with it all. I'm not suggesting I know how, but I, I don't have to lose touch with my awareness and the empathy that comes and the kindness I feel, and then whatever skillful means come forward that I can actually enact, whether it's giving people some money or, or some food or even just being friendly to people who are clearly having a very hard time. This is from Saida Utejaniya. He said, if there is no understanding, there will immediately be resistance to the unpleasant experience. We need to learn to accept things as they are, and that also means accepting difficult situations as they are. So that's part of what it means both personally and collectively to accept the difficulty, whether it's my hip or whether it's the societal, to accept that it's true, it's happening, 
and then how are we going to respond to it, whether it's the hip or the societal dukkha that's here. And so part of the reflections that I wrote down for you was what kind of dukkha do you have? Is it what kind of personal dukkha do you have? What kind of physical or, or heartfelt or psychological uh, dukkha do you have? <clears throat> or what kind of uh, social, political dukkha are you aware of? Or, or what do you have? It might be economic or cultural or racial or sexual or etc. Or one of the isms, right, that might exist. And the paradox about suffering and the four truths about dukkha is that suffering leads to the end of suffering. You can't get to the end of suffering without suffering. It's a paradox. <clears throat> and the paradox is that suffering leads to freedom, oddly enough. Because something bigger happens than our usual sense of self. Something bigger than the usual e Eugene and Eugene's ego identity starts to open up when he opens up to suffering and the truth of suffering. First of all, because it connects us to everyone. Because we're all suffering. Human beings suffer. It's one of the characteristics of human life. Ajahn Chah put it this way, he said, if the mind is not yet free, contemplate the cause and effect of each situation until the mind sees clearly and can free itself from its own conditioning. Can free itself. It's a beautiful way he puts it, because it's not that we actually free ourselves, but understanding, which was one of the Buddha's great metaphors for freedom, is what frees us. We start to let go of our grabbing on or clinging to or averting to what's true. And so we can start to come into harmony with the way things are on every level. And harmony doesn't mean we just accept them. It means we see the truth and then we can respond skillfully to what's here. Oscar Wilde said it this way. He said, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. Where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. Beautiful understanding of the Dharma from Oscar Wilde. And then I was thinking about um, examples, people who exemplify a kind of suffering and awakening. And there's some very famous people, which who I've mentioned here before, Mahatma Gandhi, who was just brilliant at waking up through the oppression of his people in India by the, you know, by the United Kingdom, who was a great conqueror of the world at that time, and he he beat them by standing up, mostly nonviolently, against them. 
and also Nelson Mandela in South Africa, who was in jail for, I can't remember how long, if anybody remember, 26 years? Pardon? Pardon? 27, yeah. And I, I visited South Africa, I visited his jail cell, and you just can't imagine how a person could spend that amount of time and come out so beautiful, really, and brilliant and kind and intelligent and as a leader. And yet he went through a lot of suffering, but he stayed in himself. He stayed as an embodied person who woke up through his suffering. And then I was thinking about some more current people. I'm going to give you an interesting person, uh, Gary Shannon. And it's, I read an article, I've actually got the article here from the, from the Chronicle, but I, I made it a little easier for me to read here. And he was a fireman during the earthquake 30 years ago. How many people were here for the earthquake 30 years ago? Great, a good amount of people. How many people weren't here for the earthquake? You missed a great earthquake. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't great. It was, it was a big deal. I was here watching the World Series was starting, and, uh, and I was with my daughter, and I was on the phone talking to a friend in the East Bay, and she said, oh, I think there's an earthquake. And the phone line went totally right there. And then I felt it. You know, in my, I was living in North Beach, and I felt it. And uh, I grabbed my daughter and went outside, and then, and you know, seemed okay. And then I went in, turned on the radio, and uh, this is when there were still transistor radios. Some of you might remember, and uh, and it said there was bad things happening in the marina. So I went with my daughter up the hill, and I could see the marina from where I was. It was like this is bad, right? This is serious. And then I came back to my house and I looked around to see what had happened. Nothing had happened in my house. There was one little card on my mantle had fallen over. That was it. So it was, you know, just depends where you are when shit happens. But he was a fireman. And it, uh, let's see. He was he was trying to help somebody who was in one of the buildings in the marina and they were stuck in there and he couldn't get through to them and so he, the, the article said it wasn't the two hours that firefighter Gary Shannon spent working a chainsaw under a collapsed marina district building that got him. It was the five minutes he spent lying there while a colleague replaced the blade of his chainsaw because it had, you know, it had run out or, you know, it was too, it was too dull finally. Shannon was on his back in the claustrophobic crawl space no more than two feet high. He could see the glow of approaching fire. He pictured the fire chief ringing the doorbell of his home to inform his wife, Deidre, that her husband had died while trying to rescue a woman trapped in an apartment after the Loma Prieta earthquake. He pictured Deidre giving the news to the three kids. Those five minutes changed my thinking, Shannon, who's now 74, says in a voice, but calmed by his daily 40 minutes of meditation. 
they talk about time standing still, it did. So he was in the middle of this dukkha that was happening in the in this area because of the earthquake. And he goes on to say a number of things. I'll read you a few. Because um, he had grown up here and he lived in the sunset. Um, he had, he, he said, I'll read you, I'll just read you what they said, right? It's a common story among people who have a, uh, face a life-threatening situation. The promise that if they survive, they will mend their ways and stop wasting time or taking life or family for granted, right? It's a little wake-up call. And, and then the Chronicle says, these vows are often forgotten as soon as the danger is lifted. And Shannon was tempted to go back to his life in the Irish bars of the Sunset District where he grew up. He was now a hero with a rescue story that spread nationwide. He had earned the, the fire department's greatest uh, honor and drinks would be on the house for a long time. But he never went back to the on the vow to pursue enlightenment that he made under the building the evening of October 17, 1989. He has spent 30 years on a spiritual quest that has taken the fourth generation city boy out of his element and out of the country. It was a life-changing day. I survived it. And then he goes on and on and they say, what else? When the building collapsed in the marina, Shannon's crew of five had been ordered all the way uh, from Divisadero Street. He thought they were just sent as a backup. When he got to the top of the hill looking north, the marina, quote, looked like a bomb had gone off, he says. And then he go, he finds this woman, right? The building was compressed, so the only way to reach this woman who was in the building was to go underneath and cut a path through the floor joints. He got his chainsaw and went to work. Took him two and a half hours and two, two saw blades to go 35 feet. And he got to this woman who had broken her hips and pelvis, meaning the building had fallen on her. By then, water was coming into the building from hoses for, uh, dousing the fire next door. Shannon took off his heavy coat and put it over her. She grabbed his hand to make sure he wouldn't leave, but he had to go to get a new blade. He said, I'll be back, I promise you. And she didn't believe me, but she finally let go of his hand and he did come back 10 minutes later with a fresh blade to free her from the beam, pinning her to the floor. And it, it goes on and on and, uh, and uh, he, it changed his life. And they, and they became friends. He and the woman became really good friends. And they're still friends, and he's still in touch with her. And they they did all kinds of different things together. And uh, yeah, he was he walked her through rehab and helped take care of her. She had been a, a pianist and had played uh, rehearsals for San Francisco Symphony and Opera. And um, it says six months after her release, she and Shannon attended the opera together. When her health later failed, she was used, using a wheelchair, and Shannon would take her to lunch at Westlake Joe's. 
She'd have a martini by then. Shannon wasn't drinking at all. It didn't work for me anymore, he says. It wasn't part of my life style. He quit his job and stopped playing this and that and drinking afterwards. His wife and him moved from their flat in the sunset to Marin, Marin County. And then it goes on. He said, the hours he used to spend in bars were now spent at Spirit Rock. Just totally, I didn't know this at all when I was reading this story. We're now spent at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in West Marin. That led to a pilgrimage in Thailand, to Thailand, searching for the monasteries of one of the monks he'd studied with. When he returned, he took up he took up silent retreats, sitting for ten days without moving, looking up, or talking in the Mojave Desert. I, I used to sit those retreats and teach those retreats sometimes. He'd been to Nepal and Tibet and sat with the Dalai Lama for 10 days in India. And he just goes on to say how it changed his life. Right? He says, Buddhism is a philosophy, not a religion. I steer clear of organized religions, he said. He hasn't had a drink in 19 years, and he plays golf every Monday. <laughs> And so Duca, you know, even he was scared under the building, right? Which, of course, makes total sense because it could have collapsed on him or the fire could have picked up and jumped the building and he could have died. And yet being there, staying there, following our hearts, being aware can lead to freedom. Another person who I wanted to mention is um, Jarvis Masters. How many people know who Jarvis Masters is? Anybody? You know who he is? Pardon? He's, in prison. He's a prisoner. He's at San Quentin. He's been in San Quentin 30 years now. He was first arrested, I believe, when he was 23, or maybe it's longer now. The article, one article I read, maybe it's 33 years. He's. Uh, he was uh, involved in something where somebody killed somebody and he got arrested for it and he got charged with murder and he got convicted and he's in, he's in San Quentin 30 years or 30 some years in San Quentin and uh, at some point uh, uh, a number of years ago 25 years ago or so he uh, his lawyer turned him on to Buddhism and brought her one of her Tibetan teachers in to meet him, um, uh, Chagdung Toku Rinpoche. And he gave him uh, the Red Tara Empowerment, which I don't know what that is, but you get certain blessings in Tibetan Buddhism, and it's good. And, uh, and he's been practicing ever since, and he writes a lot. Uh, about uh, what it's like to be in prison and be free, even though he's not free, right? And he would like to be out of prison. He still insists he didn't kill this guy. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence now that that um, <clears throat> it, was, it was not an accurate conviction, but he got convicted. And... Um, 
and he's written a few books, one called Finding Freedom, Writings from Death Row, and the other is called That Bird Has My Wings, and it's kind of a famous Dharma story that he was in the prison yard and somebody was throwing rocks at a bird, one of the other convicts, and, uh, and, and, or had caught the bird and was going to kill the bird. And he, he, he said, please don't kill the bird. Don't kill the bird. And the guy wanted to know, why shouldn't I kill this bird? And Jarvis said, that bird has my wings. That bird has my wings. And that's a beautiful understanding of our interconnectedness with all of reality and what he's pointing at. Because that bird has all of our wings, right? And all beings wish to be free. <clears throat> and then the last piece I want to say is about the benefit of going through hard times. And there's been a lot of um, studies now in what's called post-traumatic growth. But post-traumatic growth, right? And how people thrive in the aftermath uh, aftermath of adversity, and um, and including a book called Wired to Create, um, excuse me, Unraveling the Mysteries of the Creative Mind. They talk about uh, Frida Kahlo, who's a very famous Mexican painter, who um, many people know, and she's got great self-portraits, but often her self-portraits depict her in the hospital or, or going through difficulty because she had a lot of difficulty in her life. And uh, here is what it said, right? One of her most famous self-portraits depicts her in the hospital bed, naked and bleeding, connected by a web of red veins floating uh, to floating objects that include a snail, a flower, bones, and a fetus. Henry Ford Hospital, the name of the painting, and I grew up in Detroit, which that's where Henry Ford Hospital is, right? Um, uh, was an artistic rendering of her second miscarriage. Right? And she wrote that the painting carries with it the message of pain. She experienced multiple miscarriages, childhood polio, and other misfortunes, in, um, and she put them into her iconic self-portraits, and a real understanding <clears throat> of her work requires some knowledge of the suffering that motivated it. And so the phenomena of art born from adverse, adversity can be seen not only in the lives of famous creators, but also in the lab. They've been testing people and giving them different kind of tests and showing how adversity helps open up the heart and mind. As, yeah. Up to 70% of trauma survivors report some positive psychological growth research has found. Growth after trauma can take a number of different forms, including a greater appreciation of life, the identification of new possibilities for one's life, 
more satisfying interpersonal relationships, a richer spiritual life, and a connection to something greater than oneself. A sense, yeah. So those are a few thoughts about dukkha leading to the end of dukkha or to the flowering of who and what we are that is possible for each of us because we're all going to have dukkha. That's just normal. And the potential is already here for freedom to wake up. So those are my thoughts for tonight. And what I'd like to do is hear your thoughts, comments, questions, agreements, disagreements. We have a microphone here. Please feel free to speak up. And even if you don't feel free, speak up anyways. Meaning if you're shy, don't be too shy, please. And please say your name so we all get to know each other. And yeah, pull it down so you're really comfortable. Hi, I'm Rachel. Um, it's been a while since I've been here, but it feels great to be back. Um, I'm so glad you talked about Duca because um, my birthday was yesterday. It was kind of a big birthday. How big? And I had, it was big. It was, can, you, can you tell us? 50. 50. And, Happy you know, birthday um, to your body. Sorry? Happy birthday to your Thank body. You. <laughs> so, um, uh-huh, yeah. I had this whole perfect day planned. Uh-huh. And it turned into just, you know, a bad day. Uh-huh. And I, um, I can feel this temptation to sink into a kind of very dark mm-hmm. place with it all. Um, but I've been sitting for a while now, so I just really told myself, just pay attention, keep paying attention. Um, and it was really hard. And I don't know exactly what was happening, there was this very strong force in the brain when dukkha. It's like there was dukkha, and then I guess my reaction to dukkha, but there's a strong force pulling me down into it, away from awareness. And yet, in the moment that I told myself to keep paying attention, I already was feeling better. And it's hard to keep it going. You know, and eventually I couldn't, and I just, I just fell. Mm-hmm. But at, but you know, so I didn't succeed at it totally, but I did have a window into what that might be like. Right. So I'll give you a few thoughts, and thank you for sharing. At fifty, I can't remember fifty, but I'm old enough, so it's like a long time ago. But and uh, but it always seems like a big deal those numbers. 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100. You know, those specific numbers seem... And so often we bring a lot of ideas about what they mean. And they may be conscious or unconscious what it means. So that's one piece. Then the other piece is you had a plan to have a great day because you're 50. And of course, you're 50, you should have a great day. And we're not in control of almost anything, actually. And so shit happens, and I don't, you don't have to say what happened, but 
it didn't work out. You had a bad day. It was family dukkha. It was family dukkha. Welcome to the club. Uh, right? Because a lot of us have family dukkha. You know? And, and families are beautiful and they're a pain in the butt sometimes. And so... Um, and then you said the, something really important, like you stayed... You, you didn't say it this way, but I heard you stayed aware of it, like you paid attention, is how you said it. And that helped. And of course that helps, because just the fact that you're being aware of it means you're not connected to it. And then you fell at the end, you said. I would... I, and I that, couldn't sustain so, Pardon? I couldn't sustain it. Right. You know? That's important to know that, though, because you can't sustain it sometimes. So then the question is, what's a skillful means when you can't sustain it? And so there are, uh, for me, the most skillful means I know is to watch, you know, sports on TV because it's meaningless and yet I like it, right? And I also like when people are good or when the Warriors win and all that kind of stuff. But it's an interesting, skillful means because that's how I think of it. It's like, really, I don't care about sports at all. But I like sports and I love people doing things well and these people have been trained and they do their thing well, whether whatever sport it is. And it takes my mind away from myself and sometimes that's a skillful means. And so and it could be different for you. It doesn't have to be you don't have to watch the Warriors, but you you know, it might be a walk in the park or it might be a bath or it might be a something that's being kind to yourself so you can relax and not just focus on the dukkha. Because you want, balance is very important in Buddhism and the Buddha stressed it over and over again that you don't want to get too imbalanced, right? You work with things as a skillful way and then you back off if you need to. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Only if you want to. Something comes, you can jump up. And much more fun if somebody else talks to me. Thank you. Okay, here's somebody. You're next. Okay, you go first. Then we'll get him. Okay. He's just being shy now. <laughs> You're being very generous. I'm CJ. Pardon? And I'm ready with CJ. And uh, I think you sort of answered this, but my question is about the balance between Feeling the dukkha and gratitude. Uh -huh. And I often use, uh, probably not the reason why I shouldn't use gratitude, but I, I go to a place like if I'm feeling, you know, suffering or whatever, I think, well, at least I have this, and I have this, and I have this, and I try and focus on my gratitude to take me away from 
Right. I don't like suffering. Right. And I guess that I don't it's confusing to so, I don't know which Again, you can do that if you need to, if it supports you. But also, uh, what about gratitude for the dukkha? I can't hear it. What about gratitude for the dukkha? I'm not proud of that. <laughs> and, and I mean, in here, I'll tell you what I mean. It's like there's something alive there, even in the dukkha, right? Like even, okay, my body's got this thing, it didn't used to have it, I can't figure out what it is, and it's a drag, and really, I'd love for it to go away and be done and not have to ever think about it again. But also, I'm alive and aware of it. The liveness is still here, even with the dukkha. And so the dukkha, I don't really mean I'm grateful that I'm suffering, but I am grateful to be alive and dukkha is part of life. And so that, a little more, and, and then what do I need so I can be more intimate with her or stay embodied with the dukkha? Because it's not all of my body, it's just this. And then letting the whole uh, uh, somatic kinesthetic awareness be here. And then it has a whole different perspective because it's much smaller than the somatic kinesthetic leads to a bigger beyond the somatic kinesthetic awareness. Does that make sense what I'm pointing at? Right? Because the awareness is bigger than anything I could we could say. And so so you know what keeps you away from the dukkha? Is it possible to relax around the dukkha? Right? Not not that you're gonna fix it. But can you relax with it and then see what happens? And then by relaxing, do you mean sort of appreciating, like, oh, I have this thing, which means I must be alive? <laughs> yes, that, that, if that supports your being present and aware. Because it's the presence and awareness that is freeing. Okay, thank you. Okay. Now for my respectful friend here. Hi. Hey, how's it going? My name is Iso. My first time here. What's your name? Iso. Iso. Iso, yeah. What kind of name is that? Uh, it's a Japanese word. It's the shoreline. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that a given name? Yeah. Oh, Hippie beautiful. parents. Born in Santa Cruz. Oh, really? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I knew some hippies when I, yeah, was, yeah. When I was a hippie. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's possible. Possible, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say something you were talking about before kind of spoke to me. Sure. Uh, more of a statement than a question, but um, just what you were saying about uh, people going through trauma and kind of that pushing them on some kind of spiritual quests. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, obviously, this is not like the worst trauma anybody can go through, but yeah. I noticed, like, I had a pretty big breakup a little while ago, mm -hmm. and I've noticed since then, um, like, the reason I'm here is kind of on. Yeah, no, beautiful, and it's this. It's there's all kinds of dukkha, and they can all take you to freedom, you know. And that's you know, it's very normal dukkha what you're describing: breakup, heartbreak, I assume, of some kind, or 
just the whole world you envisioned, built, and lived, and then it, it's gone, mm -hmm. right? And it's dukkha. It's serious dukkha, actually. And I've had my own, right? I've been, I've had many relationships, a few marriages, right? I mean, I'm, and uh, and it's heartbreaking, actually. And the the paradox is, if we don't just react to it. We can something really opens up, including our heart. There's a great quote from a guy. Let's see if I can remember his name. He was a Tibetan. He was a Westerner, but a Tibetan Buddhist writer. Shit, I can't remember his name. But he he wrote this after he had cancer. He said, and he was not happy about it. But he wrote this one little haiku. He said, "Heart broken, open." And it's true, our hearts break open. They're not so structured anymore. And, and then we start to see the boundless nature of the heart that is possible for us to realize. And it's not just even about one person, it's about all beings. And it's been the fun part of teaching my class about love, is about, I talked about loving, uh, uh, what is love? And then loving uh, love in Buddhism, and then loving ourselves and loving others, and of course the last class, which I'm going to teach this week, is about loving reality, which is paradoxical, but it's about the boundless nature of love that is possible for us as human beings. Mm -hmm. And so I'm appreciating your movement in that direction. You, you don't even have to try. That's really the good part. Just do your practice and the practice will do you. Okay? Thank you. Great. Thank you. Esau. Yeah. Got it. Please. Lily. And pull the mic down so it, it really matches you. Yeah. Hello, my name is Lily. Um, I guess most recently I have like I'm um, have some mother-daughter dukkha type of stuff. Are you are you the mo are you the mother I'm or the daughter? daughter. You're the, yeah. And it's nothing super crazy. Mm -hmm. It's just since we don't see each other so often, we just there's something there that just is like we can't be so comfortable or something. Um, but we're both trying. I say pretty, pretty hard, like trying to work it out. Uh -huh. um, and most of the time when I go to my mom's, I kind of, um, what am I going to do to make it better? Like, how can we get along? Do you talk and, to her about um, that? Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, it's not even like it's, there's some um, huge underlying stuff, really. It's just kind of a frustration with each other, I'd say. And this time when I was there, I kind of realized that's just how it is right now. Like we're both working on it, mm -hmm. and we're trying to get along better. Mm -hmm. But that's just the place that we're in right now. And that was very freeing mm -hmm. um, in right. a way because <coughs> just I don't have to keep working and trying to figure it out. And it's just there's going to be mother-daughter weirdness, I feel. Yeah. And um, yeah, and same. I um, I'm 
about to go to my second 10-day silent retreat. Great. And um, trying to figure out what they mean a lot by um, sitting with the pain and that kind of stuff. Right. Because um, my legs do hurt when they have by the they, couple days in, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, that just shed a little bit more light on it as well because there is something about sitting, knowing you can sit through that and having done it. Right. And um, yeah, just so I can relate to what you were saying so, about um, what after that, how you feel. Right. And, um, yeah. Good. And let me say a few things. One about mother, daughter, Duca. Great. Something about you coming, you both knowing it, being able to talk about it, and just relaxing about it maybe as much as can happen right now and you don't have to do something right which is very freeing but but you can be real together okay so i was appreciating that and then the piece about sitting with pain i've sat with a lot of pain and you can sit through pain and you can not sit through pain and they're both good Right, and so you can see the one thing you don't want to do is hurt yourself, which people do sometimes. And uh, I never hurt myself, but I sat with a lot of pain, and I could sit with pain to the point where um, the samadhi was so great that I was like, Oh, you could sit through anything, and actually, not only that, the pain which is killer at times goes away totally not by moving but by concentrating and becoming one with it and it just everything relaxes and the samadhi is really uh, in my language a lot of fun actually but it's not always everybody's doorway pain you don't have to have pain to do samadhi but that was my doorway as a young man, especially because I hated sitting cross-legged at first. And I sat cross-legged and, and uh, they kept saying, don't move, right? No, I, don't, I don't think they say it so much anymore. Where are you going to sit the 10-day retreat? Um, it's a going coach. Oh, yeah, great. They, 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 you, yeah, yeah they there's more. Yeah, yeah, they really do. I, I said a number of going retreats. They're great. Um, they're sometimes, you know, they're they're a little tough, uh, but if you can work with it, great, because it's very powerful and it's very embodying, right? And you're just you're just scanning the body, right, top to bottom, and. Yeah. I appreciate what you were saying about the balance as well, though. I had to, a couple of days in, like, talk to the teacher lady about it and kind of say, at what point should I move? Because, yeah. like, at a certain point, I'm not able to right. be peaceful or any of the things no, that we're going through. No, you can't it's stay over, with you can't stay with the meditation, so you yeah. want to move at that point. And I don't know, they're, they're a different tradition than I've taught in, and at least when I used to go, and I actually sat with Goenka himself way back when, but, um, but um, they, they were very strict, and we're not so strict at Spirit Rock, right? So I would say, of course, if you need to move, move, 
and stay mindful while you're moving. But they're doing a slightly different version of mindfulness in the Goenka style. But it's great practice, really. I, I love the Goenka practice. We're going to Bangkok to do it. Or, or oh. It, they, actually, it's really nice. They have like a shuttle. They pick you up from Bangkok, even though it's about four hours away. So, great. Um, yeah. Oh, beautiful. It's like not like my first Vipassana 10-day retreat. I went to Yucca Valley. And, and I get to the airport, I'm like, well, where's the bus? And there's no bus. I call them up, and they said, well, we don't have a bus. You have to get here. <laughs> so anyhow, have a great retreat, Billy. That's great. Okay, we need to stop. Uh, let's just sit for a moment in a relaxed way. Sit very relaxed for a moment. And we'll just offer the merit of our good fortune that we're here and we can study the Dharma together and learn about the teachings from the Buddha, Buddhism, reality, this moment. Appreciating our good fortune and may that good fortune go out in every direction, be available to all beings in all realms, in all worlds. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, free from confusion, misunderstanding, free from dukkha. May all beings be free. Thank you, everybody. Good to be with you. Uh, I don't think I'm here next week. Uh, Pam's here next week, and there may be a special guest star here with Pam. We're still working it out. Um, and if you have a couple minutes to help us, just close down. Patrick will direct. There is one more thing I want to say. Oh, I know. They've asked me to say this. Um, Please don't go out the doors that say, don't open this door. Read the signs and follow the signs. And don't let anybody in. They had some problem here from one of our groups where people let somebody in and it was inappropriate. So thank you. Okay, see you in a couple weeks. <laughs>